No, I just I just wanted to mention um, that I won't be my normal, you know, ebullient self, you know, for the for the people. We'll make a good show though. It'll be fun. But, you know, I might be somewhat cranky. We'll just say that. And um rather than um for me to describe why I'm why I'm cranky and why I'm upset, <clears throat> I'll I'll um I'll read this. So, um our friend uh in Jerusalem, Maya Abu Al-Hayat, um, was able to email me this morning. We've been having a little bit of a correspondence back and forth um, just to check up on the situation. And I'll just read you what, what she wrote to me. Dear Robert, yes, it is difficult in Jerusalem. We are not going out. I really thank you for your words. I'm trying not to collapse, but things in Gaza leave us all destroyed, and we are not able to talk about it because of the new laws. I'm afraid about renewing my permit and that I will be thrown out of Jerusalem and away from my family. We need a road for loss that doesn't end with the settlement. Be safe, Maya. Um, so that's what's going on there. Um, but the one thing I wanted to say as a, as a sort of a little commentary before we get into our show is that she makes a good point there. Um, they're uh, locking people up for, you know, criticism, you know, lowering morale, all of that. <clears throat> And um, same thing's happening in France, for example. They're trying to crack down on the protests for the Palestinians in France and other places. So what I'm advising all my comrades and friends to do is do not equivocate. Don't fall for it. You do not have to uh, say, well, you know, this or that. The Israeli government are the bad guys. And that's it. Um, I have a friend uh, in Gaza... um, Yusef, he was a nurse at a hospital. I, I just expect never to hear from him again. So I, I just, I implore every activist leftist that listens to this to um, stop being bullied into making ridiculous statements while they ethnically cleanse a big area in the Gaza Strip. In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hello. Um, we are in the studio. Carl is here as usual. And uh, we have a special guest uh, tonight, uh, Professor Stephen Metro. Uh, he's, he's an associate professor in public policy and administration at the University of Delaware and the director of the Center for Community Research and Service. Um, thank you, Steve, for coming. Evening, Rob. How's it going? Good evening. It's going... Okay, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, Professor Matro has written a paper uh, in June uh, along with, uh, remind me, you wrote it with another colleague, correct? Steve Piquet. Steve Piquet. Um, it, uh, is for, it was in the June edition of the Delaware Journal for Public Health, uh, Homelessness in Delaware and Assessment. And um, we're going to get to that because the assessment is, uh, is not great. Uh, but in that paper, uh, an activist is, is quoted uh, about homelessness and, and, and homes in, in Wilmington. And I was like, Cheyenne Miller, oh, my God, I know her. Um, so, <laughs> Cheyenne, thanks for, thanks for swinging through. Thank you. That's right. You got a quote in there. I did. Thank yeah, you for I asking like, me to put a quote in there. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was, it was great. Well, um, 
I, I reached out because um, my friend Lex uh, wrote a story that published last month. Uh, he's been working on it a long time. We had kind of talked about it here in secret because he was very nervous about it. Uh, but about a woman who uh, was homeless, uh, who uh, was begging in Bardea and other restaurants uh, on Market Street, was banned from Market Street, but of course you can't really ban somebody from a street, and wound up uh, spending time a year, and uh, now she's back, I believe. Uh, we'll get an update on that. Uh, in in Baylor, in the women's prison. Um, but there's a there's a... There's a bigger problem, and I want to set the context before we sort of talk about that specifically. Um, in the last 10 years, we've, we've had a, a real sort of surge, would you call it a surge, in, in homelessness in, in, in Delaware since the last sort of big assessment, Steve? That's a good question because the problem is we don't know. Um, I mean, I've done work in homelessness for, you know, in New York, in Philadelphia, out in LA, various other places. Um, been at UD for about five years now and gotten to know the homeless situation here. And one of the problems has been the data, which is kind of when you're a researcher, it's kind of like the intelligence in that it tells you the extent of the problem. And, you know, I teach policy and before you can come up with solutions or ways to address it, you got to know what you're looking at. And in Delaware, that's really difficult to do. So one of the points of the article, and if what I say, what we say is at all interesting, I encourage you to go um, online, www.djph.org. It's free. There's no paywall or anything. And um, you go on the site and you'll you'll be able to locate pretty pretty quickly the special issue that the Delaware Journal for Public Health, DJPH, put out back in June on housing homelessness and public health. And you can, and again, I'll put in a plug for myself, encourage you to read the article. Um, and what we do is, it's not a long article, maybe six, seven pages. Um, the I promise you the stats are easy to understand. Um, and what we do is basically we we look at the state of homelessness in Delaware, just kind of big picture, small state, and which no one has really done for like the last 20 years or so. And we basically look at that and kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, what we thought was kind of the level of homelessness for the last, again, for the last 20 years, you know, it's kind of been going steady at about, on any given night, about a thousand people, sometimes goes up a little, sometimes goes down a little. And then lo and behold, COVID hits and the numbers spike. And um, wasn't necessarily because of COVID or because of the, you know, the, the, um, the response to COVID as much as like COVID did with many things, with many different issues, it kind of, kind of laid bare a lot of a lot of things and you know what we found was you know there was basically because of you know so the um so when covid hit all of a sudden shelters didn't become safe anymore because again shelters aren't great places to stay um a lot of times they're congregate living situations and you know kind of a public health nightmare when there's an when there's a disease like COVID going around. And so we, um, so the federal government came in, um, this was CARES Act money, 
gave to the state for um, for homeless individuals and families to stay in motels and in hotels, and they um, and you know which kind of kind of solved two problems at once because nobody was staying in these hotels because you know we all remember everybody was staying home so the hotels were empty um, homeless people weren't safe in the shelters so put put homeless people in the hotels which you know is much more desirable than living in um, much more desirable than staying in a shelter you had your own room you had you know you can lock your door you can you, know, you had some you had some privacy you had um, and so all of a sudden so the so the state of Delaware which had hotel motel vouchers for about 50 households either individuals or families had a small program all of a sudden that ballooned to where in about within about a year they were sheltering over a thousand people on on a given night in this program and as a result the homeless population kind of doubled so these were a lot of people who wouldn't go to shelters but who were staying in pretty crappy living situations i mean they could have been staying outside they could have been living on you know in the living room of friends or family they could have been in abusive situations they could have um you know they could have been living down in sussex where there aren't any shelters and they don't want to come up to big bad wilmington where they've heard a lot of bad things and it's a long way from any kind of supports they have, but that's the only shelter where they have. But all of a sudden these hotels and motels became, rooms became available and they took them up and the population just kind of blew up. And so, you know, we make the argument that this wasn't anything new. This population was there all along, but they were hidden and kind of COVID and the responses kind of brought them out in the open. Yeah, can you explain a little bit because um, you, you mentioned at the beginning, and I, I think it's important to sort of, before we even s can figure out what this exposed, the limitations of even being able to to count or to do any kind of estimate to start out with, to figure out, you know, what the baseline even would be. Um, I think you call it sort of a place in time. You can do like a snapshot at one time and sort of extrapolate that out. Um, but it's 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 fairly uh, it's fairly complicated, and um, you do go into sort of the limitations of it as well, and I think that's important to talk about. Yeah. So, and if, again, I don't, I don't want to make this into a lecture and go in, but um, I'll so I'll try and keep this short. But basically, homeless pe it's homeless population is hard to count because nobody really goes out and says, "Hey, count me. I'm homeless here." It's, um, you know, they're much more blend into the woodwork, try and, you know, try and be as discreet as possible in that because, you know, nobody wants to, nobody wants to have, you know, you're homeless, people are going to kind of look at you, then they'll look away, walk past you and things like that. And it's, it's, it's rough. So they, you know, try and so... So counting people that really don't want to be counted. Now, if you're in a shelter, people are easy to count because you basically, you have a captive audience. You don't even have to count. You just go up to the staff and say how many people are staying there and you have a number. But it's when people are staying in other locations and they're staying in, you know, in, in, an, in an encampment in the woods in a vacant house or something like that, then, you know, they don't want to be found. You're not going to find them. And so that 
become, even in the best of situations, that becomes difficult. But there are ways to find them. There are ways to find people and to count them and to, um, and one of the best ways to do that is to actually do outreach. And so it's not to just like me just go in behind a Walmart or something and start looking for homeless people because they're not going to come out. But if I'm a known person, if I'm like working with you and have some kind of a relationship, ideally a relationship of trust, then, you know, you kind of get acquainted with people and you know, and they start, um, they start trusting, especially if you give them services and things like that. And you, you know, and then kind of you're aware that there's a larger community out there that you don't see otherwise. And, you know, you go into the woods and you see like these tents that are really very elaborately set up with generators and like a TV. And I've seen like kitchen facilities and stuff that. Um, yeah. I mean, just around in this neighborhood, I can tell you that uh, twice in the last probably month, uh, once we were in the park, just hanging out, playing bocce, ball rolls away rolls into the tree line we're looking for it and you know you see somebody set up in there and you know you just try to be like hey this as you said you know you give give it a little bit of respect obviously they don't want to be seen and nobody was there but there was stuff there so we, we actually found the ball fucked off uh and then near here won't say really where but you know there's a there's like a billboard and sort of a berm and a hill and a you know, I, you see someone go up there with a bag or something that where they just went to a bodega or got some food or something, and you know, it just strikes you that the 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 problem is is it's tough to get at. You know, it's not in front of everybody, and even when it's in front of everybody, as you say, we're gonna look away pretty quickly at it. Um, can you talk about what what so when when COVID hit and and that money came and we see the amount of people who are just taking advantage of that service and 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 that help it it must have uh, kind of indicated that the problem was uh, widespread well yeah i mean what that showed was i mean that basically laid the problem bare that a problem bare that we otherwise just kind of we don't see it's kind of among us but we're not aware of it and so from two from 2000 um 2000 2020, just before COVID, there was each year there's a count in January that's done where volunteers and I, I take part in this. Um, and I see Matt Meyer goes out there a lot. Um, Bethany Holong was there also um, this year. Um, various other people and also a lot of kind of you know uh, people I don't know and get to meet and get to know. And we go out and count and have what's called a point in time count so one night just trying to see how many how many people we can count who are homeless and like again counting people in a shelter is relatively straightforward counting people outdoors isn't and so um so basically that gets all totaled up there's a number in 2020 that was 1100 people which was a little bit higher than usual in 20 and then by 2022 that number had more than doubled to about 2400 people um within two years just double the number and just about that whole extra population could be explained by this extra sub availability of hotels and motels. So the state of Delaware that administered this program all of a sudden was sheltering more people than 
the rest of the homeless services system combined. And so that was in in January 2022. And then um and then in the summer of 2022, the money ran out. The federal money ran out and the state shut the program down. And um and basically so by like October, they went back to sheltering maybe a hundred people from more than a thousand back down to a hundred. And so the 2023 count, the number plunges, the number goes back down to about 1,200. And which is telling because it's not like homelessness got any better. It's not like all of a sudden all this housing became available or people found places to stay. It's just people didn't have these access to, to the vouchers anymore. And they basically went back to wherever they came. So and, that could, and that could be anything. I mean, do we know for the folks that were getting the vouchers and getting that service, do we have an idea of the sort of the different sort of situations they were in, whether they were, we spoke to somebody who did a, a, a long article about sort of like couch surfing and living in your car in Massachusetts. He wrote a story in, in the current affairs about it. So I know that's like a, a category um, just you know, uh, you know, sleeping rough on the street. Do, do do we have an idea of where these individuals and families who were getting the service, the thousand or so during that time, what their situation had been? Well, again, I've pretty good idea, and I, I said that a, a little while ago. I mean, there's there's going to be people who are in abusive situations and who feel like they need to stay there because they have nowhere to go, and if they have somewhere to go, they're going to leave. There's people who, you know, making maybe, you know, $200 a month and their rent is $500, $1,000 a month. And they're just hustling or doing whatever or way behind on the rent or, you know, wh- whatever. There's people who the only thing they can afford is some is just real place with real shitty conditions. You got mold or you got, you know, no heat or or whatever. Um, yeah. There's people who are outside. Um, you know, Michael Kalmbach, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, kind of the people that go there who a lot, you know, will basically a lot of whom will sleep wherever they can. And that includes being outdoors. That includes just, you know, somebody will let them stay for a night or two somewhere. Um, people who are in who people who are paying for motels when they got money and then they're basically hustling when they don't i mean it's just that mix of people and um who basically had a respite because of this program and don't anymore and you know and they're impossible you know you can't get an accurate count of that but um so so it's um you know as going to make one other going to make one other point with that so um oh so so in 2023 that number the number of people who were staying in you know just in sheltered situations which includes hotels and motels that number went way down but then the unsheltered count which again is always an undercount but that count the number actually went up from the 2022 count so you had you know, again, homelessness declining if you look at the sheltered population, but homelessness going up if you look at the unsheltered population, which again is telling that this is not, you know, that there's a lot more homelessness out there. And from a policy point of view, you know, what we've been looking at as the homeless population is actually much bigger. And then if you want to get even broader, 
then, you know, this is the tail end of the, you know, the homeless is a tail end of a much larger housing population, a much larger housing problem, housing shortage. That's not only impact that where homeless people are, you know, if you think of it as like musical chairs, there's X number of chairs, there's Y number of people. And so, you know, when the music stops, people are going to, those people who are left standing are basically going to be the homeless, but those people who are sitting down are having a harder and harder time finding a seat. And so that is starting to kind of to, to trickle up and you have, and that is why I think the housing problem is getting much more attention here in Delaware, but the homeless problem really isn't. And it's something that in the article I point out, I mean, it's, you know, you can certainly ask powers that be at the state, you know, why when the homeless population has doubled have, you know, you cut funds for providing shelter? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. That was going to be my question for sure. I, I, I didn't even have to look this way. I knew but, this was like and a public question we're going to we're going to talk about in a minute. Happy to talk with you. But also, um, you know, I'm. I'm on the board of the Delaware Continuum of Care, which is basically a consortium of a lot of homeless services providers. I don't provide services myself, but I'm very involved with working with people in there, and I'm on the board. And, you know, there hasn't been much, it's largely been business as usual from the nonprofits and the homeless services providers as well. And again, that's, I put that on me as much as I put on anybody else. And, you know, in the article I had Cheyenne, I asked her, you know, what are the advocates doing? Because the advocates here are also a lot quieter, save last Sunday, and I'd like to hear about that if we get some time. But, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of noise there either. And so it's been, there's been a vacuum is kind of what I argue. And in going forward, we really need to get together and to basically reconsider where we're at and what it's going to take to address this problem. Yeah, save save the the Hope Center, which I want to kind of talk about in a moment and sort of leave it to the side as a sort of a special circumstance for a couple of different reasons. But one thing you make clear um, in the article is that as this is happening, as we're seeing this phenomenon where we know that there are more people, we know that housing is, is getting crunched for all of the different reasons, the, the services are dwindling to almost nothing. And so the two lines are going in the opposite direction, which is which is pretty scary. And I know this is something you work on all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, what what I guess my question is for you, something like this, this nonprofit consortium, um, they are not going to be dynamic enough to handle as far as I think. Uh, any kind of increase, any kind of crisis whatsoever, unless, as happened two years ago or three years ago, the government intervenes in some fashion. So, I mean, are, are, is there a way we can ramp up the services that are there? I mean, is that something that you're working on, or are we just looking for a, a sort of almost a sea change and a big injection of some sort of some sort of service or help? Yeah, I guess like from the end of advocacy and asking for there's some there's for there to be some type of intervention i guess is the best word to say for this it's 
I think it's going to require some government intervention, but I do want underst- like people to understand that there, there kind of already is government intervention. And we saw what that was during pandemic, which was let's give them a couple more motels. And that is not long-term housing like for people, right? That's not, and that's not going to work, right? Like, I think that's the thing that's been kind of bothering me over the last several days was like, I'm doing preparation for a rally where there's going to be people who are speaking that have lived experience. Most, about like 50% of my speakers were currently homeless, are currently homeless, like right now. And I'm like unable to give them any type of navigation of this system for how to get them back into some type of housing. And I'm navigating it through the existing things that are there, the Hope Center, the, the, you know, the, the, the shelters that are already there. And like, I'm saying to people, do you want to go into a shelter? No, I'd rather live in my car. I'll be respected in my car. (laughs) I'll, I'll have a better chance in my car. Like, or just give me a rent, like give me a place to rent. Like they're telling me, give me a place to rent. And I'm like, how how can I give you a place? To, I don't know where to, I don't know where to look. So I guess like I've been wrestling with this and I've talked to Carl about it yesterday. I have literally, I have absolutely no answer. Not that there is no answer, but I have no answer right now when it comes to what is the policy intervention other than put people in fucking houses because it should not be this complicated and our state agencies are completely failing. The centralized intake does not work for people. People are sick of it. Like they hate using it. Like the shelters that we're using are inhumane for people. Like, and we're asking for more and more federal dollars to go into this stuff, more and more of our state dollars. And then also more and more of our grant dollars to go into these services that are just plain disrespectful. <laughs> Yeah, people. that was going to be my question too. If there's a if there's a sort of a feeling that you know going into a place, a shelter, or whatever wherever you can get into, is not like you're not showing any respect, it's, you know, and it's just it's not maybe it's not safe. It's not you know is that the re? I mean, is is there a way to make the service sort of like yeah, you will be safe. There's not going to be sort of a stigma because of how bad it is, um, or is it or is it? I mean, is it something you think? can be built and people can be convinced that there is a process. Cause I think that was my, that was what I was so disappointed by in the story that, that Lex told that you were involved with is that here's a, a specific, now this is obviously just one specific situation. Um, you know, the woman probably needs, you know, uh, you know, medical services and health, health services needs a lot of stuff. Um, but if they don't get that or they're not sort of cooperating with, like, the two options that you have, whatever it is, like a bad one and a worse one, um, there's, like, that's it. There is there is no other process to do. She, she just sits in a prison cell, I guess. And, and, and so, like, do we – is there processes we can build out that will uh, give people a little bit of dignity and, and, and have more – sort of more tracks available to put people on like that's that it, it just seemed and again i know that it's it's one sort of like story but it can't be just one story it's indicative of a of a of a systemic problem 
Yeah, I mean, I can be the academic here, and I will be, and I am. Yeah, well, good. Um, That's why. It. <laughs> exactly why you're here. And in that, it's not so much a systemic problem as it is a multi-systemic problem. I mean, you have housing as a system, you have mental health as a system, you have criminal justice as a system. I mean, I worked for the VA for a while, and you have that system. Um, foster care system plays in, of course, the public welfare system, and um, you know. Public assistance is a big part of that, and I'm sure I'm leaving out a couple. So, And when you get failures of one or more of those systems, then you know homelessness is something that often results. Um, incarceration is another thing that often results. And I think that's – so you know that, that story about the woman, which I got quoted in a couple of times and um, also got involved with, is – you know, this was a woman with, and I had never met her, but she has a severe mental illness. Like, um, you know, like you said, he, she was um, panhandling in one of the kind of the the better restaurants of of Wilmington. It's a rack of ribs costs upwards of fifty dollars. Think of that. Think of somebody going in and like begging for food somewhere like that, and then being put in prison. Anyway, sorry, I had to go yeah, off on a and, tangent. Very <laughs> high end uh, stuff. And um, you know, and gets. And gets cited for, as far as I know, gets cited, I think, for disturbing the peace. And then as part of her, as her, part of her conditions for, uh, you know, for, for getting released, she was forbidden from going to a certain part of, um, of, of Main Street, of Market Street in Wilmington, which, um, on what's called a no contact order. And, Again, the way I understand, I mean, she was she went back down there and she got she got arrested. She got put into Baylor, which is the women's um, car, in, you know, women's prison basically, and jail. And so she was never convicted of anything, and then stayed over a year before she was arrested. And again, she stayed for charges that, at the worst, would have landed her in jail for a couple of months. And she ended up in jail for a year before charges were finally dismissed. And, you know, what I point out there was that, you know, that that is just very indicative of a mental health system that doesn't have a place for people like this who just, you know, who who are not you know who are not cooperative with the services that are that are available and i would argue for for good reasons and um and so you know she's considered a public nuisance and um and to some people who were quoted in the article as a threat which again i kind i kind of question how much she is a threat to others but um and and as a result was locked up and again, people in her situation with the severe mental illness and don't have any family support, don't, you know, are not involved with services. And like I said before, I mean, someone in her situation, for her to, you know, it takes, it takes building relationships, it takes building trust to get to a position where she's going to be accepting of services. And, you know, Baylor Women's Correctional Institution is about the last place where you're going to get those kind of situations. Yeah, that's not going to be building a lot of, like, good bonding experiences over there. So, yeah, so, I mean, so you're talking incarceration, you're talking forced medication, um, and, and 
other, you know, and just basically other very coercive measures to address a mental illness. And it's kind of where it's where a system break where the system breaks down. Um, and you know, there's been a couple of examples. Paul Kiefer, who's another journalist over at Delaware Public Media, did a story about a about a, a a man and very different situation, but also with the severe mental illness who did okay when he was in a long-term kind of institutional facility. But then when he got released into the community, he would inevitably kind of go off the rails. And, um, and the last, and the last time that happened, I mean, he basically walked out of, um, walked out of a bodega with a, with a soft drink, with a kind of a Snapple or something and got arrested and, you know, and basically got sentenced to 20 years incarceration and um with the reasoning being that there's no other place for this man he is you know conceivably a threat to people a threat to the community and and the only way and then when he went into the mental health system he'd get released because for 99% of the people who are being treated for a mental health condition um you know the community is the better is the better way for that and to keep someone institutionalized is also very expensive and also something that you know like delaware like um the the psychiatric hospital um is you know has been downsized over the years and that's a good thing but there are still some people who are going to need um who are going to need long-term hospitalization and it is where the system failed. Where the system failed this guy, and and as a result, they get locked up. Um, yeah, and so you know, either locked up or they end up in shelter when they get released because they don't have a support system, either family or from you know from the the services system. And and it's not unique to Delaware. I mean, this is this happens across the country, but um, but it, it is I think particularly because it's a small state and you you know you. you you kind of the it become you know individual cases become that much more you know more noticeable yeah i mean i i was hoping no go ahead I, no i was just gonna say like thinking about that process like you for some odd reason you don't got a place to live so you say what where do i go you call 833 find bed you call the the number and let's assume that you get a call back and you're able to be placed into a shelter and we're talking about where are the where are the spaces for intervention, right? Like where do we either prevent this person from being put on the street or where do we get them off the street? You get into your shelter and what happens while you're there? And some cases, maybe you get a really great case manager, you get a real, all this great help and you're able to transition yourself into employment if that's what you need into a place for you to stay and maybe you're able to get back on your feet hopefully you're able to stabilize yourself and stay on your feet and stay in a home and in other cases maybe you're not i think that part where people get into the shelters is a piece that we have to start asking questions about the approach that people are taking inside of shelters to get people back on their feet and I don't know that there are that many shelter beds as it is that we need, obviously. Like, no, I don't not know that. We don't have enough shelter beds. That's, that's not a question of I don't know that. We don't have enough shelter beds. But 
the question of like what happens when you get into a shelter bed and what services do you receive and whether we're taking these housing first approaches or are we treating people with dignity when they're in there so that they're willing to stay and whether or not we're actually providing them with a long-term intensive case management, hardcore wraparound services. Plus we have the ability for we, for us to find them a place because think about the Hope Center. Let's say you get 60 to 90 days to stay in the Hope Center. 60 to 90 days might be enough, not, might not enough time. Like, And that was going to be my question. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying every shelter is like that, but right. like, what the hell? Like, that's not enough time to get back on your feet for some people. Yeah, because it seems like, and that was going to be my exact question and just using the Hope Center as an example. Because Steve was talking about, you know, it's not a failure of, it's not a systemic failure. It's a failure of many systems all working together. And if you find a place of intervention where you can, you know, you're not going to have every system there, but at least you could have, you could coordinate something at a spot where you know someone's going to be. Um, I don't know whether, you know, my my disappointment, and maybe I shouldn't be disappointed, maybe I don't know enough, I was going to ask you, like, what has the Hope Center taught us? Has it taught us anything that that's, that, that that's a way to go? My concern is that people were telling me, well, a lot of the, a lot of the intervention there is, um, you know, the funding's running out or it's sort of nonprofit based. It's not sort of it, so it's going to fluctuate anyway, the, the way nonprofits do. Um, rather than being just fully funded and, you know, make 10, you know, would it make sense to build 10 of those and, and, and staff them with state employees who can who's able to get into one? Yeah. I I don't know. I don't, I I, I don't know whether it, whether the, the idea of the hope center and what has happened there has, has taught us things that are a good idea that we should be doing more of and that we can kind of, kind of latch on to something and say, Hey, here are some successes of this um, experiment that we did what worked right, let's talk about the hope center and i'm going to kind of be more in defense of the hope center i mean there are some very there are a lot of positives with that and there's also some very difficult situations that they're facing so the hope center for those people who are not um familiar with the hope center it is delaware's largest shelter now it was a what a sheraton hotel for a long time with the kind of an ignominious history in, yeah was in it a sheraton itself. hotel i mean it was supposed to be a Sheraton. it hotel. was at one point did it how, how long did it was it open? The sign. yeah but the sign was on it but how i, I wonder if we mm-hmm. look and see how long it was open i wonder anyhow i don't know how long it was open it was built i think for a republican convention up in philadelphia and the developer uh, you know capano went went beyond what he was permitted to build and got into a tangle with with uh with Newcastle County and there's stories about like the top 3 floors filled with like injection foam because they were you know because it was uh, it was off code and they couldn't be used and kind of a crazy history and then and then it got renovated like just before covid hit and so it was like in pristine condition and it was sitting empty and and then and it went up for auction for um circumstances I'm not quite sure but anyway this this kind of once in a lifetime just convergence of federal cares act money being available to the county and this basically pristine hotel being available for 20 million dollars which for one of for a building like that was basically a song and 
they bought and so they had the resources they bought the hotel and they and within about six weeks converted that into a shelter not only converted it into a shelter but a shelter that was you know from a public health standpoint kind of compliant with um with the um with you know the the public health measures that needed to be taken um to prevent infect to prevent covid infections and you know and these were nice hotels this is you know imagine going to you know the the hotel you stay at when you go to a conference for those of us who goes to conferences i mean that's about the level that it had people stayed they had their own room they had their own room you know in good shape it was it was bigger and again what's very important to people is that they could lock the door behind them because that is something you don't get in most shelters and something that people value um you know they had the 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 luxurious suites up on the top they put the you know they saved that for the larger families and so you know you had the occasional family with like six seven eight kids they can all get housed together that's huge to be able to do that they had and then they also had space for different agencies to come on because um you know who that could provide you know they had a medical clinic in there they had mental health services they had um the state service centers had they had an office there that were able to you know connect people with state assistance and so you had all of that so that was and still is you know just in ter- as far as shelters go i would argue i mean that's that is definitely one of the better shelters. I mean, I spent a lot of time there during COVID. Um, be, um, you know, Carrie Casey, who was running the place at the time, said, you know, we've got a whole atrium here that nobody can go to because of the the quarantine conditions. We've got Wi-Fi. And, um, you know, and I was, I live in Philadelphia. I was basically looking to come down to Delaware, just get out of the house. And I set up shop there for, you know, just did my Zoom meetings, did my writing and other stuff that, you know, that, that academics do and um, got to observe the place for, for a while back during COVID. And it was just impressive how that went and also seeing the concern that people had that they brought in. I mean, there was one room that was just basically decked out with toys that somebody had funded. And so like for a kid's birthday, they can come in there and, you know, it was, it was literally like a kid in a toy store and able to pick out anything that they wanted. And there was like a lot of really nice touches like that. But also, you know, the Sheraton Hotel, one of the problems with it, it was built on a floodplain. It, you know, you drive by it on 95, there is nothing around there. So, you know, it was also a blessing for the city of Wilmington because not only did they get the homeless population out of the city, pro- the city proper, but they also got all of the agencies out into this place. I can tell you that when I interviewed Matt Meyer about this, and I was excited about it, and I'm still excited about it, based you know based on the things you're saying, because I do think we learned a lot from it, and, and there's a, a lot of things that we can model and do. Um, but the first thing I told him, I said, "Man, you did Mayor Przicki a huge solid here, huge solid, because." Any any neighborhood that has any services in it whatsoever, mental health services, addiction services, um, you know, low-income housing, whatever, people, it just, you know, that's kind of what really dashes your hope when you see 
uh, when you see that stuff. But yeah, that did that did the city of Wilmington a huge solid um, moving it out there. And my other concern because of that was just transportation. Like, you know, can we get can we get a regular just make a new bus route? Like, why can't we just do that? I remember t- asking them, like, just you know, let's let's get with the program here. Yeah, now they have. I think they have a they have shuttle service, which is great. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I just you know the best I, out of a bad situation with transportation, but transportation yeah. is kind of a constant, a constant problem. Um, another thing that they do that's really cutting edge is they let people bring pets, their pets, in with them. Which I mean, that's which you look at reasons why people are unsheltered. One of the reasons is because. They're not going to, you know, you, most shelters are not going to let you bring your dog or your cat or something with them. Hope Center does. And they've got that set up and they're, they partner with some kind of a, a veterinary program where they come in and, you know, give, give the pets services just, you know, on, you know, as well, which is a huge need because, I mean, it's hard enough to get medical care and, you know, to get any kind of veterinary care when you're on the streets is like impossible yeah um so but that goes to the question before of of, you know treating people with a little bit of dignity Mm -hmm. they stay with their family they you know they have services there the pet can come and they can lock the door behind them it seems like you know you start to check a few things off that seem like pretty easy easy stuff you know maybe you can start to turn the tide a little bit and find an intervention point that people are comfortable being there and then do it do what needs to be done and and then one other, but you know, and going back to a couple things that we were saying, but that also leads to questions. I mean, you know, one of the dilemmas they have there is that, you know, it's as nice as you know, for some people, this is a nicer place than the housing they're going to go to when they leave, and which leads to a dilemma. I mean, this is also you know temporary housing, so how long do you keep people and? You know, this is something they have struggled with, um, you know, and ultimately the goal is that the the facility is supposed to be a supportive housing. You know, it's supposed to be a shelter for a while. And then when the need is not as great, it will turn into a supportive housing, which is a kind of a permanent housing facility. But, you know, that's not going to happen anytime in the near future. I mean, there are no imminent plans for that to happen. Yeah. And again, there's no, yeah, that's the end of the line. And there's nowhere else. Yeah. It would be great for the next to do the next thing, but there's nowhere for people to go. I think that's sort of the question also is like, maybe it can't become long-term supportive housing, but are we putting time limits on the time that people spend in shelters and, in those time limits, what are we expecting? So I dealt with a family um, that was in a shelter that had a time limit of when they had to leave. Of course, they, you know, they were in there and thankfully it was the Hope Center. Thankfully, they had this this space where they could all be there and they didn't have to split up as a family, which sometimes happens if you have to go into the shelter because, you know, men can't go in some shelters, only women with children. There's all those types of rules. And the Hope Center was a place where they could go as a family. But one of the issues that came up was the case management issue. And they just like were not being treated with dignity by their case manager. And I'm talking about stuff like, hey, you know, like I'm expecting you to report to me with all these things that you're doing to prove that you actually want to get out of homelessness. And I want to criticize 
things about your lifestyle and the way you work and the way you live. Are you saving enough money? Are you budgeting? Are you doing all these things? And I'm just going to say, like, as a as as a person who deals with people experiencing homelessness and tries my best to treat people with humanity, that's offensive, right? To go to someone who's coming out of a difficult situation, nobody wants to stay at the Hope Center, right? You want to stay at a Hope Center as compared to Fairview. You want to stay at the Hope Center as compared to the street or your car, but no one wants to stay at the Hope Center. No one wants to be homeless. And so I'm here because I have to be here. I'm here because I'm in a bad situation for you to question whether I'm going to work hard to get out of here is crazy. And yet I know that across almost every single space that I've ever worked in with homelessness, people have experienced caseworkers questioning whether they want to get out of homelessness. And that is what people are dealing with when they are actually in the process of searching. And I think that's the thing that pisses me off. That's what I've been dealing with is like, how do I coach someone on how to be a good advocate and talk to their state legislator and ask them to be involved, ask them to get all these things, you know, come out here, speak up, do all these things, put yourself out there when the people who are supposed to be working with you and assisting you are treating you like you're the you're the reason why you're homeless. It's your fault. It's all your all your fault. Well, and we also talk about everything. This is the reason everything's like means tested, right? We have to figure oh, out the means who, deserve, who deserves what. Do you deserve this? And that's, do you not that's, deserve the, it? that's the shit and again, that drives this, me nuts. And, and this, is a, this is a multi-system problem. This goes whether it's uh, housing vouchers or housing for homeless or any kind of, ser- any kind of service. And that's the thing that I, you know, if, if, we can, if we can get away from that sort of mindset of like, who who deserve? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing to like be able to have your cat and lock the door behind you? You know, it's just. But but again, it's so ingrained in the in the in the 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 ser- whatever services we give, we give like through, through like gritting our teeth and like really holding it and not wanting to give it out. And it's it's just a horrible way. It's it's a horrible way to deal with any of these sort of social issues that we're gonna have to start dealing with. So I'm I'm not surprised. But before we go, because I know you were interested in it, can you talk a little bit about um, what the, the the event you put together, what it was about, how it went, so we can sort of uh, we yeah. can praise you as well. Oh, oh, that's so nice. But the people who need to be praised are actually people who came out and speak. So the rally was put together as a Peace Week Delaware event, and I'm sure you guys know Peace Week Delaware does a annual week long series of events that are focused on peace and social justice, and they've been doing this for eons at this point, a long, long, long time. Um, and I appreciate Jeff Lott, Darlene Battle for approaching Homes Campaign. It was like, y'all wanna do something on housing? And I was like, mm, maybe, I don't know, what you want me to do? And they wanted to do a march and it ended up turning into a rally. And we organized this and the focus was to give people who are experiencing homelessness a space to basically speak to what's going on, what's it like, what do you need help with, you know, and what can we do to fix it? What are the solutions? And a lot of them came out and was just like, give me a house. Y'all got a lot of vacant houses out here. Just give me a house, which is my favorite solution. My favorite solution is always going to be like, yeah, there's vacant houses. You should just let me live in one. Um, and like the rally itself was, I I didn't know what the weather was going to be like. I didn't know how it was going to be. It was I was very like, all right, whatever happens, happens type of thing. We were able to get 75 people out at Rodney Square to do this rally. And it was amazing. Um, and I had some really great speakers and most of my speakers have lived experience or are currently experiencing it. 
And I was really happy because I was able to maintain that space for them. I had people reaching out to me saying, can I speak at this rally that didn't have lived experience that I wanted to be like, either you come with resources or don't come at all, right? Like don't, don't come out here asking me for a space when I'm leaving the space for these people. And I will, I want to say the people who spoke, so I want to say their names. So I had Sophia Hughes, she's Miss Teen Delaware. Um, I had Madeline Porter, who's a local artist. Um, I had Emery, uh, Emery Marshall Jr. And he's also a local artist, a poet. And I had um, Lisa Everett. She's a mother. She's a pet owner. She actually brought one of her dogs out. I love, I love her little dog. dog It's so cute. Um, she has lots of pets and she's an animal lover. And even though she's experiencing homelessness right now, she's housing animals. I was just like, what? Like you're housing animals while you're experiencing homelessness. Amazing. Um, we had Stephanie Lambert, who was one of the Adam Street Re- residents and Miss Beverly, who was also an Adam Street Re- resident. And really having them come out and share while they're already experiencing it was like crazy. Like it was very moving to hear them speak. But what was even more moving was that like they all knew that this could be solved and they believed that it could be solved. And even though they were all in very tight situations, they really did take the time out to come. And I think that's what's wild is like to think that we're in a situation where people will take the time out of their day when they're experiencing something as crazy as homelessness to come out in the cold in a rally and speak for five to 10 minutes about what they've gone through and what they want to see changed shows that we cannot keep treating people like they're not human or like they don't want to change like they don't want to have a home and i really wanted to speak to like the process i went through to talk to these people to get them to speak now for poets this is something they do right so they they're willing to come out and it's a little bit easier to have a conversation with them but for someone who is experiencing homelessness they may want to speak and they're totally cool with that but it's still a process because I can't, as an organizer, go to these people and say, come out, come do this rally, and then not ask them, do you need anything? And not ask them, are you good? And not ask them, is there a resource that I can point in your direction? And I can't express how often I have to do this with Homes Campaign is balance being a policy advocate and organizer with being a case manager. I don't do case management. I ain't no social worker. I ain't got no background in social work. My master's degree is in sustainable development, not in social work. So I don't know how to do social work. I don't hang around case managers like that. And the people that I do know that are case managers, often I see in a policy context. In other words, I'm talking about policy and I'm asking, does this even make sense, right? Is this what you're seeing on the ground? This is what I'm seeing on the ground. So it is extremely difficult for me as a regular person to navigate any services. And the only way I navigate them is because I've used them at some point or I know someone who's used them or I begged for help for someone else and I've gotten that help. That's how I that's how I have to operate. So I just, you know, I had to go through a lot to get these people to show up, of course, and I had to give something in return. And I ain't had no money, Homes Campaign, ain't no money for this. Broke as hell, y'all. Broke as hell. Well, Thank me. you to Sol- all the people who bought snacks. So- solidarity on that. You yeah, know, you know, we out here. We struggling, you, 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 you and I are shoulder to shoulder on I this said, having no money y'all routine. want a t-shirt? I gave them a t-shirt and kept it moving. And these people still came out for free. Again, showing that people are willing to do this work for free. Even though they should not have to. They should be compensated for their talent. They should be compensated for their work. But I will say, I have not been able to give any resources to anyone. I have not been able to help people get out of the situations they are in. I do not have any rental units to be given to the people that need rental units. And I do not have 
any funds to help people do their their get their judgments done. And I'm not saying I want anyone to reach out and say, Cheyenne, you should take this money so you can give it to this person. What I'm saying is this. I should not have to contact 50,000 social workers across the state or caseworkers across the state or nonprofits across the state to help people navigate when there are already systems in place for them to navigate, to become not homeless anymore, to get into a shelter and then hopefully get into a home. But the amount of navigating I've had to do for the people who I've dealt with over the last several years as Homes Campaign has been around, all has essentially been me going in and screaming at DHSS. That is literally what the fuck I do. That's what I've, I've, I do this all fucking day is I pick up the phone and I call and I scream at state social, social service people, caseworkers, and I tell them, listen, stop talking crazy to this person and just give them what they need. I literally had a person who is staying in the Hope Center who was told by their caseworker the only reason that their caseworker is asking for evidence like applications for rental for rental units evidence saying that you applied for a rental unit was so they could check it off on a box not so they could coordinate with another caseworker or so that they could make sure that they called the the rental unit and say hey we have resources to make sure this person can pay their rent not so they could help them it was so they could check it off on a fucking box that was what they were doing this person was spending hundreds of dollars in application fees and begging for their caseworker to tell them where can I go where I can either get application fee help or I can apply for a place where I know that they're at least going to consider me because you know I don't have a good rental record. I have evictions. I have judgments. And the person said, we're not we're not working with any organization right now. But I'm just taking that because I'm required to as a case manager. Like that shit is fucking wild. And that's the shit that I'm talking about when I say treating people with dignity. And that, like, I'm, I love my rally. I did my rally. I love my speakers. I'm glad they came out. But that is what frustrated me about this whole thing was that when I walked away from that rally, yes, maybe people were 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 happy and great, but, like, I couldn't even do anything for the people I asked to come out. I couldn't even do nothing for them. And they're still homeless. All the people who were homeless when they came out that day are still homeless today. And what do I do with that? So the rally was great. I loved it. But... I am like in a state of like pissed off mode. Like I am pissed off. I'm pissed off for days. Do you think it's just? Anything. Do you think it's just um, sort of like bureaucratic? No, it's a fucking mindset issue. It's mindset. not fucking bureaucratic. I didn't mean. I, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, it that's is what I, bureaucratic, it's but bureau, it's, it's, sort of, it's a mindset issue. I'm talking about people in state service centers who actually believe that these homeless people are literally the reason for their homelessness you cannot i don't know how this works in people's minds that you see a ton of people who are experiencing something and you don't think it's a fucking systemic issue you think it's just them deciding to be homeless but for some odd fucking reason these case managers really do treat these people like oh they just need to change their mindset i came across like four case managers in the last 48 hours who have all said, well, if we could just shift their mindset. I don't know if it's a script. I don't know if it's a, a a drug. If they're all taking the red pill versus the blue pill. I don't fucking know. But like everybody has said the same thing. We have to change their mindset. We have to teach them how to fish. We have to make sure that it is a fucking mindset issue. Like yeah. there is a I mean, is actual that a tra- I mean, I mean, do we have an understanding of how 
these people are i mean you talk about social workers case workers i mean these are they have some sort of professional training i don't think you can get enough training if you're still fucking mean testing niggas how the fuck are you out here saying you're giving people's training and then you're saying please give me your income so i can determine whether or not i'm supposed to help you please let me know if you are are disabled so i can determine whether or not i'm going to help you please tell me your age so i can determine or not whether i want to help you please tell me your gender so i can determine whether or not i'm going to help you you can't train that shit out if your fucking process is still doing shit like means testing you can't train that shit out if your process requires for you to do things like collect the number of fucking applications that someone is putting in but not actually help them go to the places to put applications in so they could get the place like you can't like the training is never going to touch it if you still have processes in place that are literally counter counterproductive to your training like doesn't make sense let me throw this out as the last uh sort of topic before we close and Steve, you, you you mentioned this. I don't remember exactly how it comes up from a policy standpoint, but you did something, I think, that I started doing a couple of years ago. I wish I hadn't, uh, but start listening to the, the governor's state of the state address. The, the state of, it's, it's really something. It's something. I don't know how you can speak for 17 minutes and not say anything, but in, in any case, uh, but in any, in any event, um, I, I think it's fair to say uh, and and you sort of say it. There, there's really no plan. There's no l- really leadership. You don't see sort of Carney come out and say like something like Rooseveltian, like this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it. He doesn't do that. That's not what he. It's not what he's there for. Now, is 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 do you think that someone? Again, I'm not going to sit here and, and praise Matt Meyer. It's not my job to do that. But someone who at least sort of understands the, you know, sort of engineered in some fashion the, the, the Hope Center and, and at least understands what that stuff is. Can, can somebody from the top sort of change the attitude? Or is it, like, again, if these things are always going to be means tested. If there's always a level like, I think you don't deserve it for whatever reason. Like, you're not, you have the wrong mindset. Like, you can't fucking judge somebody's mindset. Get the hell out of here. Anyway, like, if, if, if that's it, that's a tricky one. Like, I don't know, other than, other than you know, sort of a, a whole initiative to sort of make people aware, to put money to it, to, to retrain and talk about it. But again, you're not, you cannot change the fact that the fact of the matter is we give, we give people the, the least we have to to the poorest, most desperate people. That's just, that's what we do. And so if, you, if that's what you do... It's very hard to get people out of that mindset. Like, are you desperate enough? Are you poor enough? Like, are you, how far down are you? And then decide, and then you decide whether or not, like, somebody's a fool, you know, fully deserves to be, to be able to lock the door behind them. I mean, a couple of thoughts with that. I mean, I think when you are on the level of governor or county executive, I mean, what you first thing you do is you know you pick your priorities you can't address everything so you're going to say these are the things that are important to me and you know you mentioned carney's state of the state i think it was his budget ad- address where you know again to my pleasant surprise laid out a you know he basically he addressed housing which and acknowledged it as a problem and also acknowledged a set of measures. And I think it was 40 something million. And I'm sorry if I got that wrong, but you know, 
a substantial amount. I mean, it's it's a problem that is much bigger than that, but you know, it's substantial amount that he puts towards housing, and you know, so talked about the programs that he wanted in his budget, and then almost as a throwaway line, basically said, "But I want to be very clear that this isn't." money that we're using to address homelessness, you know, and basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, that this is a different problem that, quote unquote, we're working on. And, and which, you know, again, I want to be respectful, but I also beg to disagree. Yeah, well, let's, let, that, well, I can be disrespectful. Because Cheyenne can be disrespectful. <laughs> so what did he, when he, when, when, when he, what was what was the implication that this money, this is the housing situation, and I recognize sort of the situation, and we're going to earmark $50 million or whatever it was to it, um, but this isn't really housing. It's really something else. I mean, what is what is he saying? I mean, the implication that I got from that, and I would argue is pretty clear, that homelessness is not a housing problem as much as it is you know, mental health problem or substance abuse problem or something, which again, I will not be as vocal as you all, but I will strongly disagree with that in my own way as well. I I think we're vocal enough. That's fair. That's fair. Can I jump in on the Carney point specifically as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah, please. If you want to see what it's going to be on Carney's state of the state next year, look at the credit reports for the state of Delaware. That's all he looks at. It's like, if it's not in a credit report, if it's not in a chamber of commerce town hall, which you saw they had one about affordable housing last week. I saw it. I, I just it made, me, made my mind blow up. So, yeah, I don't think it's not that he sees homeless. I mean, I think it's just he doesn't care. So affordable housing is seen as an issue because a lot of employers are finding difficulty getting employees that are nearby. This is especially a big thing in Sussex where if you work in Rehoboth, most like a bunch of people who work in Rehoboth live in Georgetown because they can't afford to live in Rehoboth. And so affordable housing is not seen as like a justice issue. It's seen as a labor supply issue. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's right. That that shit is wild to say that homeless is not a fucking housing issue, though. Like, I'm blown. Yeah, and it's only a housing issue insofar as we can get the service workers to the beach on time, basically, or or however you look at it. I mean, it's something, I mean... I was asked to speak at the Delaware Association of Realtors, their annual meeting about affordable housing. This was like, can I go as ago. you? Can I pretend I'm you? And then <laughs> well, and one I, of those yes, to one of those yes men, you know, the yes men <laughs> just be like, and I, I warned them and I said, you know, are you sure you want me? Because I will talk about affordable housing and the need for that and the need to pay attention. And, and he said, yeah, you know, want you to talk about it. All right, great. Well, I'll do that. And, but then before I came on, there was like the th- there's like a panel with like three the three heads of the county association, Sussex, Kent, and Newcastle Association of Realtors, basically giving a state of the real estate market in their respective counties. And the guy from Sussex basically said that, you know, the market where you have the retirees coming in, you know, people say that must be really good, must be getting a lot of money. And yes, that is good. But our bread and butter is you know, younger families, moderate income who are looking to get out into housing and we can't find a damn thing for them. And this is becoming a big problem because that is our bread and butter. And my mouth dropped. And then the other two basically agreed with it and started saying my shtick about how we need affordable housing. And I think my point is when it gets to that where you have 
the Realtors Association saying, hey, we don't have the housing that we need, then that's when people like Carney start to listen and that's when it gets on his radar and that's when it becomes a policy issue. And but and great for me, you know, I'm I'm a pretty pragmatic guy, you know, if that's what it takes. But then, you know, homelessness is basically the ass end of that. Like I said, musical chairs, when the music stops, it's the people who are still standing. That is the homeless population. And, you know, to differentiate that group from the larger housing problem, I think that's an unfortunate mistake. But but it's also a sign that the housing problem is getting more critical. It's when people that Carney listens to are telling him, hey, we got a problem here. Yeah. And we're picking on Carney, but it's all of them. It, it's all of the it's all the the tops. Like it's all the elected officials. Well that and that and that's I think that was kind of what I was getting at is and that was what sort of Carl was getting at. It has to have some sort of it has to intersect some kind of capital enterprise. Like, oh, it's a labor issue, as Carl said. Or, oh, you know, we don't have housing stock to generate to get these real estate, you know, get our real estate market moving. It has to be, it has to in some way intersect the capital market somewhere or else, you know, it basically might as well not even exist. But, I mean, it's, it's those problems and, you know, and those families who can't get, who can't afford to get their own house, they get stuck renting, which means they displace somebody who would otherwise be renting that and, you know, basically shit rolls downhill or affordability rolls downhill. And it's actually there's the Delaware State Housing Authority just came out with the housing needs assessment. So for all the housing policy wonks out there, they probably know about it already. This is like very exciting for somebody like me because this is like the first time since I've been working in Delaware in five years that there's actually new data on on homelessness that's available. And you can go on their website and it's at least the executive summary for this. I mean, it's a it's like it's a huge report and the executive which is not available yet but the executive summary is and they you know they call it um what do they call it? like renting down where you know you have one group doesn't have access to housing so they're going to take up housing that you know people with lower incomes are going to get displaced and they're going to go you know more down the economic everybody's going to get shoved out until the end yeah. and, and again and it's the people at the ass end who then become homeless and um, so it's and it is a labor issue. I mean, you know, you have you either have affordability, you know, you either pay it out in rent and live in Rehoboth or you pay it out in gas and you live in Georgetown or you live in Newcastle or wherever, because that's like the closest place that you're going to find anything affordable. And, um, you know, and it's a it's a market issue. It's a zoning issue. I mean, just government wise, I mean, just, you know, zoning, I mean, a, where there's a will to build affordable housing and, you know, then there's developers who see money in it, but they can't cite them because, you know, all these, all these different municipalities have zoning against multifamily housing, which we badly need. And I think, and also, I mean, you know, Matt Meyer, Bethany Holong, both have homelessness on their radar. Um, you know, housing is, is an issue for them in different ways, which is, you know, something I take comfort in. Um, and, you know, but it's, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. They just need, like, we are, like, I think this affordable housing piece, as it fits in with homelessness, it's bothering me a little bit, is, one, I, 
I know we need to build more and I would beg for the love of God, please let us rezone. We need to be able to build more multifamily units, all that good stuff. But one of the things that I've been seeing and I have a lot of concerns about, and I think this relates a lot back to other issues of like segregation and is this question about mixed income housing and mixed income neighborhoods and whether or not we need to have what they call concentrated poverty and why mixed income neighborhoods are good or bad. And I've been a little concerned about that because what ends up happening is you get these these structures built when we do have the opportunity to build structures that have crazy numbers like 70% market rate apartments and 30% affordable units, right? Like, and I think that we need to be careful because not all yes in my backyard development is good development right like people not only need to be able to buy like we have huge apartments coming up in wilmington i I, I guess you saw not excited about the press i'm not i'm not excited about the press at all like like, we have units coming in wilmington where we're allowed to do that are we going to actually have affordable units coming out of of my feed right here look buccini pollen adds to wilmington skyline Literally. I'm sure that'll help. And that's why I'm like, but how do we know that like we're going to get a chunk of these units, right, to be set aside for affordability? So we I think that's the other thing with with the question of of building more and when we're talking about whether we have enough affordable homes and are there enough places for people to go. Like we need to be careful about asking for a lot of these mixed income places because honestly, I get concerned about the fact that we're only willing to in, put money and inject any type of resources into a place unless we know for sure that we're holding for middle and upper middle class people, right? Like this is the same thing that happened with education and and desegregation, right? We only wanted to invest in schools if we knew black kids were gonna be with white kids. If we had only black schools, we weren't investing in those schools, so we desegged. And I think that's the same thing that's happening with neighborhoods is, we need to be careful about saying that we're just going to ha- allow development if there's no rules on that development that require that if you're getting any type of tax breaks or public funding, that it's going to actually go towards affordable housing. And I think that's the question I have is like, are we going to get a lot of affordable housing? If not, if when we dezone, which we should we should dezone, are we going to ensure that these new high rises that pop up aren't going to be luxury? Because I would love to see some of those new high rises have some set out, some cut asides. That's not as small as 30%. Like homes campaign says 50% of all new units need to be affordable. That's, that's, that's our threshold. 50% of all new units need to be affordable, not 30%. So like, even if we do develop, we have to have some type of space here where that says that we are requiring that affordable units are what is being developed. Not just that we're going to open up for development, not that it should be just rezone, but that we require that we're building affordable units into that. And it can't be some funky ass 38% shit. Like that is crazy. Like, yeah. Well, um, Steve, thank you so much um, for coming. I appreciate it. We need we need a we need we need a voice of, of academic and reason over there to, to to be a little more pragmatic. I think so. Thank you, um, Cheyenne. Of course, thanks, um, Carl. Have you been checking the uh, the baseball score over there? Philly's up two nothing. God damn it, Fightins! I love it. Nice. Well, we're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna go watch the end of the ball game, and uh, we're gonna try to sort of decompress after this conversation. Um, everyone, thanks for listening. Um, See, Philistine Hura, 
left his best. 